Okay, if you haven't already done so, turn to Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. We teach a doctrine here at church we call total depravity. Sometimes we call that total inability. It's a biblical doctrine, and the truth of that doctrine fills the pages of Scripture from the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, all the way to the book of Revelation. But what is total depravity? <clears throat> Maybe under, misunderstood somewhat. It's a doctrine that, that uh, teaches that fallen man is affected, greatly affected and infected by sin, and that he is completely a sinner, through and through. He's not as bad as he could be. He could always be worse than he is right now. <clears throat> but in all areas of his being, his soul, his spirit, his will, his emotions, his mind, is affected by sin, radically affected by sin, corrupted by sin. And in that sense, he's totally depraved. The totality of his being is depraved, is what we mean. And everybody born in the world has this condition, comes into the world with this condition. People can be nice. You say, well, my neighbor's a nice guy. He does nice things for me. They can be nice. People can be helpful. People can be kind and all these things. But lurking deep within the hearts of men are, is a sinful nature. And not only does the Bible teach this clearly, but experience also bears it out. All you have to do is read today's headlines. Uh, tomorrow's headlines, and you can see last week's headlines, and you can see many examples of total depravity. Or you can just look in the mirror. I can just look in the mirror, and I can think about, I can review my thoughts from today. Um, today's Sunday. People are maybe a little bit holier today than normal. You can think about your thoughts, review your thoughts, your actions, your words, your attitudes. Yesterday, the past week, and you will see what I'm talking about. The world views themselves as relatively good. People, people you know that. People think that. You ask people, are you, you know, if you use Ray Comfort's uh, phrase to witness, do you consider yourself a good person? Most everybody will say yes to that question. Uh, the world views themselves that way. Proverbs 21.12 says, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, look at the top of your, if they have the notes in there like that, the translated notes, look at the top of Genesis chapter 6, and you're going to see the description of this chapter. It says, the corruption of mankind, and that is an accurate description. Now, as we work our way through this chapter, I want you, first of all, to observe the prevalence of depravity. The prevalence of, the, of depravity. And now, in this chapter, at this time in history, one thing stands out very clearly, and that is the totally depraved nature of mankind. It's on display for everybody to see. It's on full display in Genesis 6. It's widespread. It's universal. The truth of Romans 3 is realized in this section where it says all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, what we want to do is examine this chapter, and we want to see how this prevalence of depravity is revealed, how it's revealed, several ways. And first of all, it's revealed through a total disregard for God. A total disregard for God. Now, that's, I'm calling that the title for the first four verses, and also, to, to be that, for that matter, the entire chapter. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'm going to take the entire message to explain why I say this. And this, that is because this is not an easy passage, not at all. 
Now, to tell you how difficult this passage is, I've always thought this passage was difficult. I've always been puzzled by it. Um, but when John MacArthur, this is fascinating, when John MacArthur was preparing to preach a sermon on Genesis 6, 1 to 4, just prior to the sermon, he said to his people, as he began to preach the sermon, he said this, I was having a meeting with the elders prior to the sermon, and they were talking about migraine headaches. Now, that's what you want to talk about before you get to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, migraine headaches. It's a good discussion to get us launched into the passage. And he said, MacArthur told his congregation, I love this quote, <laughs> he said, the only thing worse than a migraine headache is having to spend two weeks in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, that he wanted to spend just one week in it. He said, that would be a seriously painful experience. So he says, I'm going to do my best to get through these four verses in one sermon. And when I read those words, I said in my heart, amen to that. I woke up, I've actually had two weeks to spend looking at this passage because last Sunday night we didn't have a service. And I thought, oh, good. I've got another week. And, uh, you know, more than once I woke, in the, I woke up in the middle of the night shaken with Seized with fear, thinking, what does this mean? And I go to the kitchen table and study for an hour and a half or so. And I tell you what, although I do not have the same take that, that MacArthur does on this passage, uh, I can tell you that it, it has been a painful experience for me. It's true. And I, too, will do my best tonight. Now, I'm not saying the Word of God is painful in and of itself, although it could be if you're convicted, if you're reading a passage that's convicting you greatly, you're convicted of your sin and you are dealing with your sin, that's painful. Maybe you're reading about God's judgment in the scriptures, that's painful. But outside of that, the word of God is not painful, it's profitable. Even the pain is profitable, actually. It's encouraging, it's instructive, it's strengthening. But here's the problem. Men of flesh are interpreters of the Bible. Men of flesh and blood are interpreters of the Bible. And due to our creatureliness, our finiteness, our finite understanding, our limitations, and also, sometimes lack of details in a passage, interpretation can be painful. Am I right about this, preachers out there? Am I right about this, you who preach? I think you know what I'm talking about, especially if you go through an entire book. You know, the guys that preach what we call tropical sermons last night, Mike, tropical sermons, they can skip around and do what they want to, skip all. I, I never had a, look, I grew up in Armenian churches, never had a pastor one time to my knowledge speak on predestination. Why? You can skip around, skip the subject. Now, you can't do that when you have to confront the whole book. And that is the case in Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And a vast, and I want to tell you this, the vast majority of the Bible is plain enough as you read it, okay? It is. But there are some things, as the Apostle Peter said, hard to be understood. He said in 2 Peter 3.15. Now, this passage has been under discussion for centuries. Tonight, we're going to get the answer to what it all means. We'll try. It's been under discussion for centuries, and details have been seriously debated by the greatest of minds throughout church history, men like Augustine, Calvin, Luther, and present-day scholars like Walter Kaiser, Ken Matthews, and others. These are great Old Testament scholars. And guess what? They don't all agree on every aspect of the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6. Now, I tell you that because it's, I want to show you something I learned at Clearwater Christian College back when I went under Dr. Steele, and there was a statement repeated often there, which I loved when I heard it. I'd never heard it before, <clears throat> and I've thought about it often since, and that is the statement, good men differ. 
Goodman differ. And in our updated politically correct society, we would say good people differ. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we differ on interpretations of certain passages. And, we, and it shows the need to show grace to each other, to show grace and not to be debating and arguing and fighting each other. I've seen that, that happen of things we disagree on. Of course, we agree on the fundamental doctrines of Scripture. We all agree on the things like salvation. We're in agreement with that. Uh, but there are some things that we disagree on. And the whole gist of Genesis 6 is obvious. Obvious. That's what we need to know. Even if we don't know who the sons of God are. Nevertheless, the whole take, theme of Genesis 6 is very obvious. Verse 1. Look at verse 1. It begins with the words, Now it came about. Now it came about. When, the sun, when men begin to multiply on the face of the land and daughters are born to them, that, those words now came about, tell us that's an undetermined period of time. The Lord had commanded back in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. And people are doing that. The world's being populated. Verse 1 also highlights the, the, the fact that daughters are being born. Now, it's not unusual that daughters are being born, but it is unusual that they're highlighted. Usually, when the Bible speaks of birth, it talks about men, it talks about sons, not daughters. And, uh, but the emphasis here is on daughters. But if you go back to Genesis 5, you can see, although it says several times sons and daughters are born to all these people in the line of Seth, nevertheless, the emphasis ultimately is on the sons that are born. That's the real focus. But here, the first thing mentioned is daughters. And the reason is, is because of the excessive attention they're going to receive from certain individuals. Excessive attention. Well, look at verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They saw they were beautiful. The sons of God are attracted to the daughters, to, to these women, the daughters of men, because they are beautiful. That's the motivation stated here for what the sons of God do next. In fact, it's the only motivation stated in Genesis chapter 6. It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. The word beautiful is actually is, is comes from the word good. Uh, you could say the sons of God saw the daughters of men were good. And in the, in the context, it has to do with the idea of beauty, like it says, or uh, attraction, or pleasant, or desirable. That is how the sons of God saw these women. They looked at them, and they said they are beautiful. That's the motivating factor behind what they do next. That's what the scripture states. So what do they do? It says, they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose. They took wives from all whom they chose, you could say. And this phrase, they took wives, they took women, is used in the Old Testament to describe marital transactions. These are marriages in various verses. Now, it can include polygamy. It doesn't have to. Remember Lamech in Genesis 4.19? From the line of Cain, it says... In Genesis 4.19, Lamech took to himself two wives. He took to himself, there's the phrase again, you see it often in the scripture, two wives. The one thing that is certain is that these are marriages. These are marriages here. Whether they involve one man, one woman, or multiple wives, it could mean both. Some people during this time period may have had monogamous marriages. Uh, others may have been polygamous. It just says this, they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So, these sons of God and daughters of men settled down, and they bear children, verse 4. Now, I do not believe this involves rape, as some have said. The picture presented here is one of marriage and producing offspring. And all theories aside, this is what we read. 
Now, before I move on, I want to say a couple of things about marriage. Number one, the basis of marriage for the believer should not be physical appearance only. It should not only be, especially for those who are single here, should not only be physical appearance. I'm not saying a man considering marriage is not attracted to that particular woman. I'm not saying that at all. Likewise for the woman. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's perfectly natural. Uh, nothing wrong with being physically attracted to your potential mate. However, be careful. I'm talking about the basis of marriage. Why would you get married in an individual? You don't want it only to be because of physical beauty. That is a big mistake, my friends. And it's happened to people, and they paid the price for it. Marriage involves a whole quality, a whole spectrum of qualities. The first being spiritual, spiritual condition. You should ask yourself as you consider whom you're going to marry, if you're considering dating someone or whatever word you guys use these days, you should ask yourself, ask yourself these questions. Number one, is your potential marriage partner truly saved by the grace of God? Is this person really saved? These are very important questions. Secondly, is that person growing in grace? Now, this is extremely important. People can say, oh, I'm saved. Everybody's saved. What about that guy you're dating? Oh, he's saved. He is? Is he growing in grace? How come I never see him at church? Is he growing in grace? Third question, is that person committed to Christ and his church? Now, people say, oh, I'm committed to Christ. But if they never come to church, they just told me they're not committed to Christ. Because it's his church he's interested in. They need to be committed to Christ and his church. Too many professing believers want to get married because the guy's cute, the girl's beautiful. There's monetary benefits involved. There's other things involved that they're getting married for. Nothing to do with godliness at all. Too often believers marry someone who's wishy-washy when it comes to things of God. Oh, they, but they, they, let, they overlook it. They overlook it because they want to marry that person. Well, he's, uh, or is he saved? Yeah, I think he's saved. Well, you think he's saved? He's definitely saved. Does he go to church? Does he serve God? Does he live for the Lord? Don't be one of those people who gets involved with a potential mate who's not serious about the things of God. I'm not saying that perfect has to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But they're pursuing God. An old commentator by the name of Albert Barnes said about this phrase, whom they chose, listen to this. He says, it, wasn't, it was not for the godliness of their lives, but for the goodliness of their looks. They chose these people. Ungodly mothers will not train up children in the way they should go. And husbands who have taken the wrong step of marrying ungodly wives cannot prove to be very exemplary or authoritative fathers. In other words, men, you're not going to set a good example for your children. You're not going to be a good leader in the home if you marry the wrong person to begin with. But let me say this to offer hope. If you've done this, there's still hope that God can still work. God can still save people, unsaved mates. God can still work in their lives. Um, and God can make a house a home where Christ is honored. Is there something going on with the speaker here? What do we need to do? Okay, my, now I'm back to normal again. Okay, good. Uh, so... The, the basis of marriage for the believer should not be physical appearance only. Secondly, make sure your potential marriage partner is not just your choice, but meets with God's approval. They're choosing whomever they will in verse 2. What is important is that you first consult with the Lord and his word. 
You say, well, how do I know if the person I'm considering is truly a godly choice? Answer, does that person's life line up with Scripture, with what it says? Does, is the direction of that person's life one that is marked by a commitment to Christ, following Christ? The thing is, marriage was instituted by God. So we should go to the one who instituted marriage to consult with him and his word about the kind of person we should marry. Very important. Now, Genesis 6, chapter, one, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, considered to be the toughest uh, section of the book of Genesis to interpret and one of the most difficult in the Bible. And I will gladly add my amen to that. Now, why is that? Well, certain, several questions are involved. We wonder, who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? And, uh, and so many questions. And now through the centuries, there have been three major interpretations that have been put forward. And there are also, you have to understand, there's also modifications of, the interp of these interpretations, variations of these interpretations. Sometimes there are combinations of the interpretations. Some combine with another. And in addition to these three, there are also other interpretations that people have looked at this passage through the years that are more minor just because you do not hold to one of these three interpretations does not make you a heretic. Let's say that. Now, let me give you a summary of the major interpretations. And it's going to only be a brief summary of, the, of these views. We could spend hours talking about this. You guys know that have studied this. We could spend hours looking at all the ins and outs of these views. My goal is not to specifically you know, and exhaustively look at every single detail of these views. We'd be here all night, and somebody like a, one of the Eutychus in the audience would fall asleep, and hopefully he wouldn't fall out of, well, I guess they're all sitting in chairs, so he wouldn't fall. He'd fall to the floor, maybe, from his chair at best, Acts chapter 20. We won't have that happen tonight. And my goal is not to exhaustively refute any view or defend any view in particular. There's no way we could cover every detail. So the, here are the three views. I've got notes on these back there. They're very brief. First of all, we'll call the, the first view the apostate Sethite view. Remember the line of Seth? Chapter 5. Well, those people who hold this view say that this view flows out of the context preceding Genesis 6. And there's something to be said for that. Genesis 4, the line of Cain. Genesis 5, the line of Seth. And then you come into Genesis chapter 6. Uh, the line of Cain is seen as an ungodly group of people. The line of Seth is seen as a godly group of people. In verse 2, the sons of God are seen as the godly men of the line of Seth. The daughters of men seen as the ungodly women in the line of Cain. Or another alternative to this is the women are just women in general. And the line of Seth marries women in general, including those from the line of Seth, the line of Cain. And as a result of this, they end up marrying ungodly people. As a result of this, they, the, the line is corrupted. The line of Seth is corrupted. These are ungodly unions. And as a result, there's moral decline in the universe. That's one view. Second view, we'll call it the fallen angel view. Again, variations of this. I'm not going to go into every detail here. Now, those who hold this idea understand the sons of God to be fallen angels or evil angels. They get their meaning uh, of the phrase where it says sons of God. They get that from references in Job, in particular, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, Job chapter 38, which talks, talks about the sons of God being angels. They get it from other passages like Daniel 3.25. They appeal to the New Testament verses, such as 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, Jude verse 6. And this view holds that the fallen angels 
cohabit with women on earth. And this union of fallen angels and earthly women brings about an ungodly offspring. And their goal is to pervert the human race. Much more can be said about that, but that's the gist of it. The third view, the ambitious, despot view, or the tyrant, maybe you could call it the tyrannical rulers view. Uh, those who hold this view see the sons of God as human judges or rulers. Back then, human judges or rulers during this time. So what they do is they go to Psalm 82, which talks about, uh, uh, uses the word gods, and the, the gods in that reference are talking about human civil judges. They have such great authority on earth that they're referred to as gods. They're not, I, I'm not talking about idols or anything like that. They're just referred to as human civil judges who have authority on earth. They have great authority. Their decisions can change people's lives that they render. They're also referred to in Psalm 82 as the sons of the Most High. So you see the sons of God in Genesis 6, Psalm 82, these human civil Rulers of power are called the sons of the Most High, a similar phrase. And an alternative look at that is that the sons of God are warriors, or despotic kings, or despots, or rulers, or tyrants. They acquire large harems, Genesis 6-2. They're marrying women to acquire large harems. And, uh, and, uh, and, and by the way, another thing about this, in the ancient Near East in history, the rulers are often referred to as the sons of God. And so this view takes all this information and says this is what it means. Tyrant, tyrannical kings came down and they, and they, uh, they rule. So which is, they're the sons of God. So which view is correct? We're about ready to give the final answer and here it is. I do not know. I do not know. Now for one thing, it could be something else which we're gonna talk about after a while. But let me make one comment in light of what we've said already. Or and also, let me say this, certain elements could be true of these views that we've talked about. I do, I do lean heavily toward the fact that these are human marriages, that these are human beings involved in marriage, these marriages. I've always thought this. I've never thought otherwise. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be. But if you put aside the phrase, the sons of God, for just a minute, whatever that means, and look carefully at Genesis 6, the only references in this chapter are to people and animals, not angels. In Genesis chapter 6, I'm talking about again and again, no angels are mentioned outside of the phrase, sons of God, whatever that means. Uh, and definitely no angels are being judged. The only people, the only thing being judged in Genesis 6 and so on and going forward are people. People are being judged. Uh, no angels. Now, the emphasis is definitely in human beings. This is not an argument for a particular position. It's just a state, it's just a simply a fact in Genesis 6. Now, it's important to know this. Each of those views I just gave has strengths and weaknesses, every, every one of those views. One writer said this, that since the scripture here is reticent, the scripture is reticent here in this passage, in other words, it's reserved, very little information given, then we should be careful of being dogmatic. We should be careful of you know, coming down hard and then arguing and fighting with our brothers and sisters in Christ about what Genesis 6, 2 means, for example. Another writer said, no view, this is a great scholar saying this, no view escapes troubling criticism. The mysterious, this is another great phrase, the mysterious identity of the sons of God continues to humble the expositor. That it does. That it does. It humbles the expositor. Now, the Lord does have a meaning he intends. He's not confused as to what it means. We may be confused. He's not confused. 
And probably the people he wrote to, Moses wrote to early on, probably weren't confused either. And understand this too. The first four verses are only part of the picture. Only part of it. The whole chapter is necessary to consider. Everything is not hinged solely on the first four verses. You need to look at the whole chapter. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, in verse 3, the Lord is clearly not happy with the state of things in Genesis 6. He says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. But, forgive me, but I'm going to come back to this verse the next time we go through Genesis 6. I'll come back to this. I want to deal with this in a, in a certain way. For the time being, let's move on to verse 4. Verse 4 speaks of a mysterious group of people called the Nephilim. Who are they? Good question. First of all, I do not believe that the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. I believe they're a separate group. I say that. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. They existed before those marital unions and took place, took place and also afterward. They'd been around for some time, in other words. They were people and so products of physical union, but they were present early on in history before the population explosion takes off in verse 1. But who are they? Well, if we try to determine who they are from the origin of the word, the, uh, then we're not going to get very far, quite honestly. Since, the, since, as one person said, its etymology is uncertain. It's a very rare term. Some say the Nephilim is related to another Hebrew word that means to fall. Now, this is, this is uncertain. They're relating this to another. This is just a proposal. They're relating this to another Hebrew word that means to fall. Uh, but what, if it did mean to fall, to fall from what? And people put forth guesses. To fall from death and battle. To fall into a state of uh, degeneracy. Is it, does it mean to fall upon others to, to their harm? We don't know what it means. If it means to fall, that does not tell us anything definite at all. And that's just a proposal. Some people also say the word Nephilim has to do with miscarriages. I don't really know why they say that. Uh, some people say it means giants. And so maybe, I think in the King James it might say giants there, if I'm not mistaken. Now they get that, where do they get that from? Numbers 13.33. The only other reference to Nephilim, I believe, in the Bible. Now, do you remember when Moses sent the 12 spies out in Numbers to spy out the land of Canaan? They came back, Numbers 13.33. They came back and they said, guess who we saw there? We saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. That's another thing we haven't got time to talk about. And we became like grasshoppers. In our own sight, so, we, so were, we were in their sight. In other words, these guys are big. Or maybe they're just exaggerating, some people think. But they say these guys are huge. They're like giants. And so some people say, well, these are giants in Genesis chapter 6, based on what it says in Numbers 13, 33. But let me ask you the question. Is the Nephilim in Numbers 13, 33, the same group as in Genesis chapter 6? If so, then that means the Nephilim in Genesis 6 survived the flood. And we know they didn't. Who survived the flood? Noah and his family. 
Nobody else. So the people in Numbers 13 are not the same. They probably just took the name Nephilim for whatever reason. Like the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang. They, it says Outlaws on the back of their, uh, as they're driving their skids. Yes, I know it's the word skid. Their motorcycles around. And are they out, the same Outlaws in the Wild Wild West years before? No, it's a different group. They're just taking the name Outlaws, something like that. <clears throat> so. We really can't make a determination based on the meaning of the term Nephilim, where it might have come from its origin, its etymology. We don't know. They're all guesses. A better understanding of this comes from the further description of the Nephilim at the end of verse 4. Look where it says those in verse 4. I take that word those in the last sentence of verse 4 to be connected with the Nephilim at the beginning of the sentence, which is what the sentence is primarily about. I take it as a continuing description, not talking about the babies born, but a description of the Nephilim. The Nephilim were the mighty men of old, men of renown, it says. And a lot of people would say the same thing. And by the way, the union producing children in verse 4 is another indication that the population is exploding. That's like we see so earlier in verses 1 and 2. Now, as for the Nephilim, notice three characteristics. Number one, they were men. Number two, they were mighty men. Number three, they were men of renown. First, they were men. I don't think these people were freaks of nature. I don't think they were giants. I don't think they're superhuman beings. I just think they're human beings. Secondly, the Nephilim were the mighty men of old. The phrase mighty men means just that. They were mighty. They were strong. They were powerful. Uh, they were manly, you could say. You could translate it manly, even. They, the phrase mighty men speaks of physical strength. Often it's related to uh, military might, military power, military guys, and other references. Thirdly, these are men of renown, men of a certain reputation, that is. Men of a certain standing in the world. Men of a name, literally they're men of a name, men who had a, a reputation for being great. They're well-known, they're famous. People know who these guys are. They know what they do. They know their exploits. Now, we're not given details of their exploits. But based on the understanding of the term mighty men, it looks like they might have been known for their military prowess in battle, or their ability as war, warriors, or their strength, these kind of things. Now, in light of the sinful activity taking place in Genesis 6, I'm sure these guys contributed their own evil as well, based on the whole context. And it could be they were associated, did you see the word violence in Genesis 6 more than once? They, they could be associated with the violence mentioned in this chapter. I don't think the Nephilim were just mentioned in passing. For no good reason. I think they contribute to the evil in some way in this chapter. In a chapter describing totally depraved people, these, two, these guys also share that depravity. Now let me say this. These are men of a name. It should not ever be the goal of a believer to seek for himself a name in this life. Like these guys were. We just sang the song. I saw it in the, in the words, Stephen. Uh, my worth is not in skill or name, it says. Not skill or name. That's not our worth. We're not looking to be some, something in this life, something great, something special. We're not looking for that in this life. We're not looking to be well-known. If that's what you're after, your depravity is revealing itself in your pride. We're, here to, we're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here to do that. You can do that even in a small way, by the way, with a small group of people at your job or wherever. You want people to think highly of you, and so you develop somewhat of a reputation for being something special, maybe, and you want, people, you want the applause of people. We're not here for that. The Apostle Paul tells us what life is supposed to be about when he said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Making our, a name for ourselves should not be the goal. We should, we should exalt the name of Christ. 
That's what we should be doing. Our problem is we always get in the way of Christ. We want ourselves to be known. Now, we briefly mentioned the three major views and considered the first four verses to some degree. Remember, I said at the beginning, we're speaking right now, in this tonight, of the prevalence of depravity in Genesis 6. The first way the prevalence of depravity reveals itself is through a total disregard for God. Now, why do I say that? What does that have to do with anything I just said? Well, it's because of one more view I want you to see tonight. That's the fourth view, we could say. The, the view of Jesus regarding this time period. The view of Jesus regarding this time period, turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. We're going to read Matthew 24, 36 to 39. You will find a similar reference in Luke 17. I think that's in the notes, verses 26 and 27. Right now, Matthew 24, 36. We're in the Olivet Discourse, it's called, talking about end times. Matthew uh, 24, 36, Jesus says this, But at that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like what? The days of Noah. For as in those days, when? Before the flood. For in those days before the flood, they were doing what? Eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage until the day Noah, that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now this marriage, or this marriage, this passage has to do with the Lord's second coming. No one knows when that's going to happen. We don't know. Some people, people had better be prepared. They'd better be prepared spiritually. They don't know when he's coming. And then Jesus uses this illustration uh, from the Old Testament to describe the conditions that are going to exist prior to his second coming. They will be the same conditions that existed in Noah's day. Notice verse 38 says, in those days before the flood. That's what we're reading about in Genesis 6, the days before the flood. Now, what were people doing in the days before the flood? They're eating and drinking. They're marrying. They're giving in marriage. Is this such a horrible thing? People were going about their daily routine, the, the normal activities of life. You say, well, I thought these were wicked sinners in Genesis 6. They are. But we're going to see how Jesus' words play into all this. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these activities. Nothing wrong with eating, at least I hope not. I like to eat. Eating is necessary to sustain life. Ask Shane, he knows I like to eat. The Lord himself made provision for eating, Genesis 1.30. He says, I've given every green plant for food. God gave us food. Genesis 2.9, out of the ground, the Lord caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So the Lord makes provision for eating. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? If you, do you thank God for the food you eat each day? Each day? You should be. You should be overjoyed. There's people in the world that wish they had the food we have. What about drinking? Nothing wrong with that either. Drinking liquids, especially water, is vital for life itself. Jesus is not talking about being drunk here, by the way. Just normal, everyday consumption of liquids. Anything wrong with marrying? Anything wrong with marriage? Or giving in marriage? No, in fact, the Lord said in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make him a woman, which he does, and then 
He is the one who brings that woman to the man to be married. Nothing wrong with these activities at all. So what's the problem? The problem is that the people of Noah's day, and I do mean practically all of the people of Noah's day, carried out their daily, routine, their daily routines and daily activities and activities of life in total disregard of God. Total disregard. Verse 39 in Matthew 24, they did not understand these people until the flood came and took them all away. They refused to understand what was most important, that's living for the Lord. They were too busy living for themselves, totally preoccupied with what they had to do each day. Well, I've got to get married. i got things to do here in my life. i got things to take care of. And the flood catches them by surprise because they gave no time, no thought to the Lord or his word. They're indifferent, totally indifferent to the things of God. And they paid the price for it. That's what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 24 in those few verses. They ate, yet they did not, apparently did not thank God for it. They drank, yet they failed to realize who ultimately provided their drink. They married, yet they did not put the Lord in the center of their marriage. And when the flood came, they're all destroyed. Because they lived as if God doesn't exist at all. Paul later will say this, and whether therefore you eat or drink or marry or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. None of this is happening in Genesis chapter 6. Nobody's glorifying God. Well, one person is. They're too busy with the normal activities of life, as all people are, but there's no consideration of the Lord, none at all. They had plans, but their plans didn't include the Lord. And when the flood came, it was only then they realized, oh, God means business. But then it's too late. Now, what caught my attention is verse 38. In verse 38, rather, was that people during the days of Noah were marrying <coughs> and giving in marriage. Does Genesis 6 and 7 mention anything about marriages before the flood? Well, apart from the original marriage, marriage in Genesis 2, there are those mentioned in Genesis 6-2, and you, you never see a reference to this. I don't know why this verse should not be included in Jesus' statement about marrying and giving in marriage. And if that is true, then the men in, verse, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, were giving their daughters in marriage in verse 2 without any qualms about whom they were marrying. And their daughters accepted the men who desired to marry them without questioning who, who they, they were marrying and why, about, about their, their spiritual life. life. And, and that, that would mean that these marriages contributed to the godlessness, godlessness of society. These then are marriages without a second thought to God's approval. Just doing whatever they do because they, they're going about life normally. But not thinking about what God thinks about with marriage or eating or drinking or anything at all. Now as to the meaning of the sons of God and daughters of men, one more suggestion. Now I owe a debt of gratitude to a man named John Salehammer, a commentator, on this. Now, take it or leave it. <laughs> this is what John Salehammer leaves, and I, and I like this. He says this, these terms would be in keeping with the earlier description of the origin of the man and the woman. What terms? Sons of God and daughters of men we're talking about, okay? These terms, sons of God and daughters of men, would be in keeping with the earlier description of the origin of the man and the woman. Think about this. Both were created in God's image. However, man was created by the breath of God while woman was taken from the side of man. Thus, men are called the sons of God, denoting their origin from God, and the women, are, women are called the daughters of men, denoting their origin from man. Let me say that again. 
Thus men are called the sons of God, denoting their origin from God. Both came from God, but he's talking in a specific way here. And, men, and women are called the daughters of men, denoting their origin from man. Well, that's interesting. And I will add to this. The last verse of Luke chapter 3, which says, Adam, the son of God. I don't know why we don't ever talk about that phrase either. The son of God, which I take as referring to Adam's origin from God. So the sons of God, in this case, if we hold this idea, are men. Men just marrying women. Now, so nothing essentially, they were going about their daily business, men marrying women in this time period. The population is exploding. All these things are happening. And then marriages happen. But these marriages are in total disregard of God. Now we're talking about total depravity. This whole chapter, I think, contributes to that idea. And then Jesus adds his interpretation by saying life continued as normal without any regard for God or his standards. The people followed their own standards. And this, is, this emphasis of Jesus, I think, needs to be taken more seriously than we take it. And I'll tell you, I'm most attracted to this view at the present moment. I really am. I started thinking about this a lot as I woke up. Mike, why did I not sleep last week? <laughs> Kept waking up at night. What does the sons of God mean? Who are the Nephilim? All these questions were running through my head. And, uh, and I think I like this. Now, I'm not saying I land on this view 100%. I'm, I'm thinking through it. This is, you know what? I may know, never know the answer to this until I get to heaven. And Lord will say, you know, you really botched that up that night. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, now, other things were going on in Genesis 6. Great evil things. But Jesus' take on this is vitally important. I know it is. Jesus said this. It's vitally important. Anyway, we look at it. So this routine of life they're involved in, this is a routine without righteousness. Noah is a person of which it is said often, uh, a lot of saying about, about righteousness. This, uh, this is a routine of life without righteousness, without God's righteousness. And it's not only unique to, unique to Noah's time or the time of the flood. There are people like that today who go about their lives in total disregard of God, even in the church, even in the church. When it comes, how do I know this? When it comes time to assemble with the people of God to hear the word preached, how many people think to themselves, well, I'll, I'll go if I feel like it. Does this not happen? I think it happens a lot. They often don't seem to feel like going. What about daily time in God's word? Well, if I'm not too busy with other things. People have told me this. What about being involved in serving the Lord? Well, maybe if I, I will if I can get to it. Well, when are you going to get to it? And then you hear things like this, my job, my kids, my house, my yard, my time, my life. Just a lot going on right now. I've heard that too. I've heard all these things. Just a lot going on right now. Maybe one day, one day when thing clears, things clear up. But life never clears up. It's, it's never, by the way, it's never going to clear up. Never going to clear up. And people go right on their routine without ever presenting themselves as living sacrifices to God. Just completely preoccupied with the things of life. Calvin, we'll quit in a minute here. Calvin commenting on Matthew 24 says this. So now Christ declares that the last age of the world will be in a state of stupid indifference. The world's going to be in a state of stupid indifference. Just like in Noah's day. So that men will think of nothing but the present life. And will extend their cares to a long period pursuing their ordinary course of life as if the world were always to remain in the same condition. We're always going to be here. We're always going to be able to have fun and do our thing and do the things we do. 
No thought or precious little thought given to the things of God. This is what the people of Noah's day thought. That is what many think today. In light of that, we need to let the words of Jesus that he said be a warning to us. And all we, to, a warning to us in all we do, in all our ways, uh, in all our thoughts, in all our words, in all our activities, in the direction of our lives, let us live in the light of eternity. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again for your word. Pray, Lord, that we'll take this to heart, take the words of Jesus to heart, take the words of Genesis chapter 6 to, to heart, Lord. Whatever, whatever uh, every detail means in this section, Lord, help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to take warning from these passages. Help us to live in such a way that we take you into consideration in every thing we do every day. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen.